Something is happening in this nation. If you are hopeless about the church or about the state of Christianity, I want to tell you you're listening to the wrong news because something is happening in this nation where there is an acceleration of miracles and signs and wonders happening. We are hearing of revival breaking out in multiple places across this nation uh, where it's not about a cultural Christianity or even cultural charismatic Christianity. It isn't about just uh, our bodies doing things that we've rehearsed multiple times over. No, no, it is the reality of God, who is supreme, who is above all else, breaking into the reality of our everyday lives. And so I want to say to you, Boston, better be ready. The table, you better be ready, because what we're doing is not theory. What we're doing isn't just filling time, hoping for heaven when we die. And that what we're doing right now is inviting the reality of heaven, of God's realm, to break into everything that we know in order to bring his light where there is darkness, in order to bring transformation of everything. And he's going to use you and me because he's going to do it in you and me before he does it anywhere else. Okay, right. Well, that was an introduction. We're going to speak about plagues, idols, and worship. I have the joy today of speaking on five chapters of Exodus. And so I'm going to tell you the story for the most part This is chapter 7 to 11 of Exodus. If you're a visitor here today, I want to say welcome. We're so glad that you joined us today. We've been having a really fun time, if you can believe that. It genuinely has been fun going through the book of Exodus. I want to tell you the Old Testament is full of treasure. If you've never read the Old Testament because it scares you, I want to encourage you, start reading the Old Testament. Start allowing God to speak to you through the Old Testament. It really is a remarkable collection of writing that vividly show us who our God is. Chapter 7 to 11 of Exodus is uh, the section of Scripture where uh, we've heard already in the last few weeks that the Israelites who are the people of God, who carry the promises of God, they've been enslaved in Egypt. Uh, They've been crying out. It's not clear that they've actually been crying out to God. I think by that point, you know, it's been 400 years that they've been in Egypt. There's something very much that they've lost of the reality of God in their everyday. But nevertheless, God raises up miraculously Moses as a man who uh, is unlikely in many ways. See, God likes to use the unlikely. So if you're saying to yourself or thinking to yourself, I'm not likely to be used by God, that very statement probably means that you're very likely to be used by God. That's just a health warning. I'm giving it to you now. Um, But God raises up Moses, an unlikely deliverer, to go back into the land of Egypt from the desert where he's been hiding out and to go up to Pharaoh, which is no small thing, and to tell him to let the people go. And uh, we've heard already that there was a real wrestle in Moses' life in order to follow the call of God. And he goes to Egypt and he finally agrees to do what he's called to do. And last week I was preaching on how he he has this momentous moment that he thinks is all going to happen and then it all goes horribly wrong. Pharaoh's angry. Uh, things get much worse for the Israelites, and the Israelites want, e- want Moses to leave Egypt. Um, but God reasserts the promises. He recommissions Moses, and, and the subject doesn't change. He says to him, you need to get my people out of here, and you need to go and speak to Pharaoh again. And so the portion of Scripture that we're picking up on is Moses keeps going back to Pharaoh, 
keep saying the same thing. Let my people go. They're to worship me in the desert. And each time Pharaoh says no, uh, God moves in remarkable ways in what we know as 10 plagues um, that where God shows his power and his supremacy. And there's this kind of wrestle for the hearts of a nation. In fact, the hearts of two nations happening in that moment. And some of you might be familiar with the story of the plagues. It's, it's very strange story where um, initially Moses goes to Moses, uh, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. This is what the Lord says. And Pharaoh says, no. And then so God makes the river Nile into blood instead of water. And then seven days pass. And then Moses goes back to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then frogs come up from all over the land and overwhelm the people. It might not sound that scary, although I can imagine if frogs suddenly overwhelmed us in this place, it would be crazy. And then Pharaoh says, okay, okay, I'm sorry. And then uh, Moses prays for the frogs to go away. But then Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then again, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And this happens again and again and again. And a plague of gnats comes up. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to let them go. Then he doesn't let them go. And then a plague of flies comes up it keeps going. Okay, let me, we can talk through the, the wonderful plagues if you like. Then there's disease on the livestock. And then Pharaoh changes his mind again and won't let them go. And then there's boils all over the people and everyone is covered. But interestingly, God makes a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. So the Egyptians are inflicted by these horrible things and the Israelites are not. And all of these plagues consistently are centered on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites, where God is making a distinction between his people and those who are not his. And then hailstorms break out so crazy and terrifying that anything that is outside is killed by these hailstorms. Crops, animals, people. It's just like this crazy, horrible plague on the land. But Pharaoh won't let the people go. And then locusts come up and anything that hadn't been killed by the hailstones is now destroyed by the locusts. Pharaoh still doesn't let the people go and then darkness covers the land in such a horrible way that for three days no one can see anything and so people don't leave anywhere because they're literally covered it says darkness so that it could be felt it's like this tangible oppressive darkness covers the Egyptians but the Israelites are still in light and still Pharaoh refuses to let the people go and finally, it culminates in this horrible, horrible moment where God says, you have to let my people go. And Pharaoh has so hardened his heart by now that God is allowing the hardness to be accelerated. And God says, if you will not let my people go, Israel is my firstborn. I will take your firstborn. And so it happens, and Jesh is going to preach more on this next week, but so it happens that every firstborn male in Every household that is not covered with the blood of a lamb is killed in one night. And these are crazy stories. These are like, this isn't easy. This isn't meant to be. We make them into stories that we say at Sunday school and our kids are like, fine, and rattling off the plagues like it's okay. This is horrible. 
This is no small thing. This is a complicated scriptures for us to talk about because what on earth is going on here? And if you're not careful, you might see this moment as if God is like just so irritated with Pharaoh that he's having an epic temper tantrum. And because he's all powerful, he's just like, it's almost like he's throwing things out of heaven. Fine, ha, here's some hail and ha, here's, and it's like this just, this epic almighty temper tantrum. He's callous and he's mean and he's kind of really scary to serve because if that's the view of God we have, if that's what we see the plagues as, then it's not fun to serve him. What kind of God are we serving? You're all looking at me like, well, this is scary. This is not where I thought we were going to go. I want to be really clear here. The plagues are not something random where God was having a temper tantrum. This is something very careful, very intentional, and very thought through. And there's really good reasoning behind why God does what he does over the course of these chapters. And um, it is all about worship. Every part of these plagues, every part of these five chapters is actually about a war for worship. And we're going to just, this is, you know, we're going to, Lord Jesus, help us half an hour to go. This is a lot to cover, but I'm just going to start just showing us hopefully how to think around these passages. The war for worship. The first thing that these passages, if you read them, and I want to encourage you, if you haven't read them, read them this week. Study through them. But throughout these passages, there's a real war for the name of God. See, the thing is, right at the beginning, and we talked about this last week, when Moses first goes and speaks to Pharaoh in chapter 5, right at the beginning, when Moses introduces himself to Pharaoh and introduces Yahweh, I am that I am, to Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh say? Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. I do not know Yahweh. I do not know I am. What's he saying? I am is not. That's what he's saying. He's saying what you are saying exists. I am saying does not. What you are saying is all powerful. I am saying does not even exist, let alone is all powerful. The thing is, Pharaoh, the Egyptians believe, was a deity in human form. So what actually is happening right at the crux of this story is that Pharaoh has been set up as an idol and he is claiming worship and Moses comes in and says, hi, uh, really sorry to interrupt, but whatever is happening in here in worship, I've come to introduce you to God who actually exists, not you. And I've come to tell you that you need to surrender yourself, your own understanding of yourself as a deity to him who truly is a deity. And so what's happening here is right at the beginning of a story, it's actually a wrestle against a name because God is very intentionally revealing himself as Yahweh to his people. We talked about why, I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, it escapes me now, the weeks are a blur, but anyway... God is intentional about the revelation that he's bringing, and he continues because throughout the plague, seven times, seven being the number of perfection or completion in Hebrew text, seven times God repeats he is bringing the plagues so that the people will know Yahweh. 
There is a completion through the plagues, which is a battle for the name of God, a battle for the revelation of who he is. And that's important for us to understand. This is not a random moment, a random moment where God is just angry and being weird. This is a very intentional moment where God is intending for his name to be made known, not just to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians too. This is a revelation moment, the plagues coming sometimes, and this is really important for us to understand in the Old Testament, the judgment of God is consistently given as a means to know him. We don't understand that, but it is consistently actually intended as a means of grace if people will surrender to him. What we'll see throughout the story is with all of the plagues, there is an opportunity for the Egyptians to listen to what's coming and to surrender their will. This isn't just about God is going to protect the Israelites and he's not going to protect the Egyptians. Consistently in the stories, there are opportunities for the Egyptians to hear and to relent. But there's a war on for worship. That's what's going on. Sometimes you think, Pharaoh's so weird. Like, this isn't a big deal. Just let them go. Like, you've got frogs decaying all over. Your your people can't move because they're covered in boils. You can't move because you're covered in boils. This is so weird. Normally, you would expect someone to relent unless it's an issue of the heart, and we'll talk about that in the moment. But the first thing about the plagues is that it's a matter of his name being revealed to the people. I'm going to move on quick. The second thing about the plagues is a matter of his supremacy. This is a moment where God is saying, I alone am God. He's not God alongside Pharaoh. He's not God alongside the idols of Egypt. See, the thing about the plagues is that they're not random at all. Every single plague corresponds with an Egyptian god. These are not random occurrences. They had gods for every, here we go, I've written them because I thought you might not believe me. I'm seeing skepticism in the room. There was Happy, the bull god of the Nile. There was Isis, the goddess of the Nile. The first plague shows God God's supremacy over these gods, these idols that were being worshipped. There was Heket, the goddess of birth, who was shown with a frog head. The, ah, this is interesting now. Oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. God showing his supremacy over this idol that was worshipped. There was Set, the god of desert storms that would literally be seen like gnats coming and destroying everything. There was, I don't even know how to pronounce that, but there was a God that was represented by a fly. There was Hathor, who was the goddess, godhead with a cow, that was the goddess with a cow head. And there was Apis, the bull god. So the disease over the livestock wasn't at random. This is Yahweh showing his supremacy over the idols that are being worshipped in the land. There was Sekhmet, the goddess with power over disease. And Sunu, the god of pestilence. God Yahweh showing his supremacy with boils and disease on the people. There is Nut, the goddess of the sky. In fact, there was multiple gods of the sky. And when hailful, 
idols. What is God doing? He's saying, I control the sky, not your idols. There's Osiris, the God of the crops, and yet locusts sent by Yahweh destroy the crops. Why? Because he is uniquely supreme, not this idol they worship. There is Ray, the sun god. There is Horus, the sun god. Here we are. There's darkness over the land. Why? Because Yahweh alone is God, not these idols. There is the, you're following me. There's Min, the god of reproduction. Heket, the goddess of birth. And the death of the firstborn happens. Why? Because there is only one God. And every idol will be demolished before him. See, the thing is, the people of Israel wanted deliverance, but there is no deliverance without the demolishing of strongholds. The thing is for us, many of us want deliverance, but we want Jesus to play nice with our idols. There is no deliverance without the demolishing of idols. See, there's a battle for worship in these scriptures. This isn't random. This is an intentional war being waged against the all-out idolatry in Egypt. And God is establishing his name in the completion of seven times stated. He is now establishing over every single idol. There are more idols, but he's establishing his supremacy over that which the Egyptians worshipped. And we today, we might think, well, we don't worship idols don't have a carved image, although we might. But the point being, there are idols everywhere in our culture. The idol of money. The I- That's why generosity is so powerful, because every time we give in our church community, we are actively breaking the idol, the worship of money, as if money gets to dictate our destiny rather than God speaking destiny over us. There's our cultural idols of sex, where of course everyone can have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want however we want because sex is the ultimate aim and yet there is a God called Yahweh who is over and above the cultural gods of sex today there is we can go on and on and on your career your intellect whatever it might be whatever you set up as just as powerful or even more so than Jesus is an idol in your life that Jesus is saying you need deliverance and to have deliverance you need the demolishing of idols This is not just an almighty temper tantrum. This is war against idolatry that is killing the people. See, the thing about plagues is actually God taking back his hand from what he restrains in creation. I want you to follow me here because it's very interesting in the text. At 10 plagues, God speaks 10 times. In Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation story, God speaks 10 times. In the 10 plagues, the the language that is used for each plague is consistently mirror language that is used in Genesis 1 and 2 in creation. The aim of the creation story being that God... uh, brings about creation, but puts order to it. Uh, The order of creation is a means of his grace. What's happening in the plagues is actually a disordered creation story, where what we're seeing is God releasing something that doesn't have the touch of his grace of order to it. He is no longer restraining creation to be a blessing to mankind. He is giving the Egyptians what they worship. He's saying, you worship a frog head? I take away the grace of my restraint. 
See, here's the thing about idolatry. Here's the thing about worship in general. That which you worship, you will not be able to control. We don't think it's a big deal. Ah, God, like Jesus, I love you. I've given my life to you. I'm going to heaven. Like, just leave this money thing alone. It's not a big deal. I'm not hurting anyone. No one else knows that I'm not giving to the church. Does it really matter? Would my $5 matter anyway? We're justifying the whole time. What we're doing is we're nurturing our idol. And we're saying, leave my idol alone. Do you know why he's coming after that idol? Because that which you worship, you cannot control. And it will start to control you. That is what we see in the plagues. The plagues are, in fact, the natural consequence of worship. Anything you worship overwhelms you, which is why you were only ever created to worship one being. Because him overwhelming you is a blessing. Anything, over, anything else overwhelming you is a curse. People who make sex their ultimate get more and more and more sucked into depravity that they cannot control. Do you know how many people are seeing therapists for sex addiction that started as something that seemed like nothing and then they just started getting a little bit more possessive of this thing and why does anyone want to tell me how to live my life and this is my morality and God's got nothing to do, blah, 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 and then it ends into an addiction that is controlling them and they suddenly find that their lives are in chaos and there's no good and there's no fruit. They can't even sleep. They don't know what to do. Why? Because that which they worship is controlling them. I want to say to you, Table Boston, again, you might not have a carved image in your house. You might. And if you have, you want to get rid of that thing because it looks nothing like God anyway. And you want to meet Jesus. He is God. But you will know if there are other things in your life that you are seeking out in a way that is worshiping that thing, that is giving that thing preeminent position in your life, where that thing becomes the thing that you prioritize, where you say, no, no, I can't do that, sorry, because I've prioritized this thing. I can't come to church on Sunday because I'm watching the Super Bowl. I'm just teasing. (laughs) Although sport might be an area of idolatry in your life, in which case break it. Because whatever it is, it will consume you. And ultimately, it will be a curse. The only thing to worship that brings life is Jesus. And so here we are again. What is the plagues about? The plagues aren't random. The plagues are the demolishing of idols. And it's an invitation for you and I not to just read this as a historical weird story and be like, okay, well, that was odd, move on. But as a recognition of God exposed the idols in my life. I wish that they be exposed now so that I can be healed. Then I live controlled by them. And I come to you in moments of desperation because I am now in chaos. Deliver me now. This is the moment I... I surrender myself to you, Jesus. Demolish idols within us. Jesus does not sit among other gods. Jesus is God. And I I often meet people who say to me, no, no, I, 
I, I love Jesus. I, I'm serving Jesus. Uh, do you know, he, I've got so many gods that I worship, and Jesus is one of them. Uh, the problem is, Jesus does not sit among other gods. He alone is God. And there are religions who will actively adopt Jesus as a collection of gods, and yet this story tells us one thing, which is there is a battle for supremacy. Jesus does not play well with others. Because he is supreme. Because he is the name above all other names. And if you've adopted Jesus into your collection of gods to serve, Jesus and my crystals and my prayer mat and my... He is the name above every name. And he will not tolerate worship among others. If this story teaches you anything is that Jesus demands a unique position in our lives. And this is for every believer, as well as anyone who doesn't know Jesus. We have to evaluate our hearts and say, what have I allowed to grow amongst my worship of Jesus? As if he needs to tolerate the other things that I've allowed to clutter in. Some of us, our idol is ourselves. This is why many of us love Jesus as Savior. We want the Deliverer, but we don't want Jesus as Lord. We have no interest in the demolishing of ourselves, of me, Pharaoh, King over my life. But Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He demands Lordship if you want the deliverance. And for some of us, we need to go back again to a place where we surrender our will because if we're honest, we have become an idol for ourselves. Where Jesus tells us to do something and we reason ourselves out of it, who there is the Lord that you follow? Welcome to church, everybody. It's wonderful to see you. <laughs> Listen, plagues were always going to be hard-hitting. Third one. So it's a battle for his name, it's a battle for supremacy, it's a battle for his ways. What's interesting in the plagues, if you read through the story, you'll see that at least three times Pharaoh offers Moses a compromise. He offers him like kind of the solution. He offers him in chapter 8, okay, 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 I get what you're saying, fine, like this is a bad moment, plagues have already happened, we're kind of getting fed up. How about this? I've got a new idea. Your God says all of you leave to go to the desert to worship. I've got a new idea. How about all of you stay but worship in the land? Compromise number one. Like, do you have to do it the way he said it? How about we change the plan a little bit? You can have a little bit of what you want. It's like my ch children learning how to compromise. You get a little bit of what you want. I get a little bit of what I want. Everyone is happy. Do you know what? That is one of the primary ways the enemy seeks to destroy the people of God. Because he understands that for the majority of believers, an all-out, full-scale assault that is, causing, that is inviting you to totally ignore God is generally fruitless. So he has a different plan, which is one of like compromise. God told you to give $100, why don't you give 50 God told you to go to this place at this time. Ah, but you're really tired and that's early morning. Why don't you do it later on? 
God told you to serve here, but actually you're already serving there and you like your team. You're not going to do, right? Whatever it is, there's so many different ways. God told you to take this job. God told you to not take this job. God told you to go to this place. God told you to not go to that place. God told you to prevent this person. God told you to not, whatever it is. And what the enemy will do is try to get you to do it kind of. Because he knows that already wins the battle against us. In this story, Pharaoh keeps coming up with a different plan. I hear what you're saying. Why don't you do it this way? So he says, okay, don't go worship in the desert. Worship in the land. You know what many believers would do? They would coach God on the wisdom of that. You know what, God? This is a great idea. What a great evangelistic opportunity. Funny that you didn't think of this yourself. But don't worry. Pharaoh thought it up for you. Why go to the desert where no one can witness or worship? This is much better. We'll stay in the land and we'll, right? Because we have so much wisdom in how to coach God about how to be better than he is himself. We'll always find a spiritual way to spin it. And I'm saying this because I've been a Christian a long time, so I know how we do it because I know how I do it. We're so good at sounding spiritual when we're being faithless. But Moses knows, no, no, it is all or nothing. And I want us to understand, the longer we live a cultural Christianity, the more extreme this sounds but this is actually the way of Jesus. It's all or nothing. He's never invited people to be halfway. The way Jesus preached in the Gospels was never inviting a 50% buy-in. He was always so radical that anyone who would have stuck around but was unsure was like, I'm out of here. He's like, we've done a really successful outreach. The disciples are high-fiving. And then he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Why is he saying that? That's so weird. I'll tell you why he's saying it. He's upping the stakes because he's bringing them an all or nothing gospel. He's like, I'm not interested in that. I'm kind of in. He's never been interested in that. I want to tell you guys, Christianity isn't about Jesus plus something else. He's again reminding us today, it's an all or nothing gospel where there is a battle on for who he is, the revelation of his name. You know why that's important? Because people don't mind worshiping God as just God. They like the title, but you say Jesus and they're offended. Why? Because there's a battle on for his name. He's not inviting you to worship Mr. God. He's inviting you to worship Jesus. He has a name. There's a battle on. There's a battle for his supremacy where we're willing to adopt Jesus and this and this. And he's saying, no, I alone have a unique position. He's inviting us to a place where we invite his ways alone. There's a battle on for the no compromise. Pharaoh says, okay, you're going to go out. Then just take the men. Leave the women. and oh, Who cares about the women and children anyway? No one really cares about them. They certainly didn't at that time. He'd only been killing the guys because the guys were significant. So what's going on here? It seems like a really plausible compromise. I wonder what Moses' prayer life looked like that day. Like in a patriarchal society, he's giving me the most important. Hey, God, what do you think? This looks good to go. Women and kids will slow us down anyway. No, everyone or no one at all. 
okay? Then he says to them, okay, all of you go. But just don't take the livestock. What's that about? It's about worship. The livestock were the sacrifice for the worship. There is a battle on for worship, and the battle often is rooted in compromising on the ways of God. You know what? I'm an introvert, and I really don't like singing. So I know the Bible says, shout aloud in joy, but I'm going to take that as like with a pinch of salt because God says in like brackets after that, even though it's not in the text, but he does say unless you're an introvert and you find that embarrassing. <laughs> okay, I'll move on. <laughs> I'm getting cheeky, but I do mean it too. Last one. There's a battle on for our hearts. You know, the central theme of every single plague is the condition of Pharaoh's heart. It's like the central thing that it keeps going back to and it keeps going back to it because that's the issue of the story. There is a battle on, there is warfare for the heart of Pharaoh and the heart of that nation and the heart of Israel. And you know, in the beginning of the story, Pharaoh, we hear, hardens his heart. Repeatedly, he hardens his own heart. By the end of the story, God is hardening his heart. Be careful what the posture of your heart is because you might get what your posture is and that's always a problem. We might think it's not a big deal until God gives us the very thing we have. And then we realize the brokenness within it. Pharaoh consistently hardening his heart. You know, what's interesting is the first and last plague mirror Pharaoh's evil actions. In chapter one, Pharaoh killed the boys, the Hebrew boys, and wanted them drowned in the Nile. The first plague it's like the blood of those children crying out from the Nile. First plague, mirroring his own evil. The last plague, the killing of the firstborn males, mirroring his own evil. What Pharaoh thinks up, God allows. We've got to understand that the way we live matters. The posture of our heart, it matters. It's not like whatever, it doesn't matter. God's bigger than this. He is, but he's also using these things to deliver us. There's an intentionality with how God works in our lives. And it's not going to be completely divorced from what we're choosing. It's going to be through what we're choosing that God delivers us. And sometimes what we want is to live whatever I want. And then when God chooses to break in, he does it over here in a way that doesn't touch any of this. No, no, that's not how it's going to work. He's going to touch all of it to transform it. So plagues, idols, and worship. There's so much more that can be said. But I, I want us to respond for a moment. In Exodus 12, God says, I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. Every single God who is not God is ultimately going to find itself in a battle with Yahweh himself. That's what the cross and resurrection is actually about. It's the ultimate battle against the power of darkness 
and Jesus wins. And in this moment in our lives, God is wanting to bring about this deliverance moment for each of us. And he's wanting to do it, not divorced from the things that we're struggling with, but he wants to touch those things and totally transform them. And so I want to invite you to stand. We're, we're going to land soon. This is one of those messages that I encourage you to chew on during your week. But I want to give opportunity, just as we're about to close, what I said about um, Jesus amongst other gods. I felt like there were many people in this room today who, if you're honest, your commitment to Jesus goes as far as your commitment to your collection of gods, to your collection of things that you rely on, to your collection of uh, people that you lean on in a way where uh, Jesus is just one of many. He's not unique. And I felt like in this moment, God wanted to give you an opportunity to, to surrender to him as supreme in your life, as Savior and Lord there is, again, there is no deliverance without the demolishing of idols. That is the reality of the story. God could have plucked the Israelites, moved them supernaturally, and deposited them in the land of Canaan. He could have done it without any of these plagues ever occurring. Why then have the plagues? Because he is in that battle for their hearts, not just bringing a result. The same issues would have stayed the same again and again and again without this storyline of touching every idol. The Israelites had lived in Egypt for a long time. We're fooling ourselves if we don't believe that what the Egyptians worshipped, the Israelites did too. But this is a moment where God is showing again and again and again who he is in light of the culture that we live in. And so with all eyes shut, I want to encourage you, if, if you are someone who is nursing idols and nurturing them amidst Jesus, I, I want to invite you to repent. And what the Bible means by repentance isn't just saying sorry, but is choosing to change the way you think is inviting God to help you see him as unique, is inviting God to allow you to enter into a place where you are truly following him, him alone as Lord over your life. I wanna encourage you, some of you need to surrender your own will, where you've been battling God as if you and Jesus are 50-50 in the equation and he's saying, you are not God, surrender your will. And so Lord Jesus, we, we come to you with this strange story but we invite, as we always do, for Scripture to shape us, to change us, to transform us. And I ask you, God, God whose name is unique, whose position is unique in all the world, in the universe, whose ways are perfect, and who is looking at our hearts, I invite you, God, to come and uproot idolatry from our hearts, uproot strongholds from our hearts, that we would be a people who are wholehearted in our worship of you, Jesus, for the sake of your glory in our lives and in this city. In Jesus' name.
And I want to encourage you. We have a prayer team. There's some guys with prayer badges walking around. They'll be up front. And if there's anything today that you want to pray through, I want to encourage you. Don't just struggle on your own, but come and receive prayer. If God has highlighted something in your life that you need to relinquish before him in the cross, then I want to encourage you. Come here. Receive some prayer. Allow us the privilege of walking alongside you in breaking free from idols. Because the beautiful thing about this story is God does bring deliverance and he does bring transformation and he sets his people free. And that is in his intention with you and I, that you and I would not find ourselves in the mercy of other gods, controlling us, bringing chaos into our lives, but we would find ourselves set free by Jesus himself. Amen. This is the Sunday Morning Podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.